This morning, we looked at how Stephen was falsely accused by the Jews who are opposing the gospel. And for me, that story has echoes of the Old Testament story of Ahab and Naboth. So I wanted us to look at that tonight. And uh, as you might see, it's in 1 Kings 21. So if you're not there, turn with me if you would, please. And as we go through this passage tonight, I'm going to ask you all to participate with me as we look at different parts of the story. And I have two reasons for doing that tonight. Uh, first of all, I had the opportunity to go to a conference on just... Uh, just some basic principles of Bible study, teaching scripture, those sorts of things. And there was, I thought it was really helpful and good review. And so I think it would be helpful for all of us to look at those things. And I'm sure for most of you who've been going to church for a while, it's not really going to be new stuff, but especially for the kids, it might be helpful for them to think about how we look at a passage and uh, maybe either review or, or learn some of these things for the first time. So let me start by reading... Uh, the first part here of the chapter, and then we'll start working our way through it. It says, Now it came about after these things, Naboth the Jezreelite had a vineyard, which was in Jezreel beside the palace of Ahab, king of Samaria. Ahab spoke to Naboth, saying, Give me your vineyard, that I may have it for a vegetable garden, because it is close beside my house. And I will give you a better vineyard than it in its place. If you like, I will give you the price of it in money." But Naboth said to Ahab, The Lord forbid me that I should give you the inheritance of my fathers. So Ahab came into his house, sullen and vexed, because of the word which Naboth the Jezreelite had spoken to him. For he said, I will not give you the inheritance of my fathers. And he lay down on his bed, and turned away his face, and ate no food. But Jezebel his wife came to him and said to him, How is it that your spirit is so sullen that you are not eating food? So he said to her, Because I spoke to Naboth the Jezreelite and said to him, Give me your vineyard for money, or else, if it pleases you, I will give you a vineyard in its place. But he said, I will not give you my vineyard. Jezebel's wife said to him, Do you now reign over Israel? Arise, eat bread, and let your heart be joyful. I will give you the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite. So she wrote letters in Ahab's name, and sealed them with his seal, and sent letters to the elders and to the nobles who were living with Naboth in his city. Now she wrote in the letter, saying, Proclaim a fast, and seat Naboth at the head of the people, and seat two worthless men before him, and let them testify against him, saying, You cursed God and the king. Then take him out and stone him to death. So the men of his city, the elders and the nobles who lived in his city, did as Jezebel had sent word to them, just as it was written in the letters which she had sent them. They proclaimed a fast, and seated Naboth at the head of the people. Then the two worthless men came in and sat before him, and the worthless men testified against him, even against Naboth, before the people, saying, Naboth cursed God and the king. So they took him outside the city and stoned him to death with stones. Then they sent word to Jezebel, saying, Naboth has been stoned and is dead. When Jezebel heard that Naboth had been stoned and was dead, Jezebel said to Ahab, Arise, take possession of the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite, which he refused to give you for money, for Naboth is not alive but dead. When Ahab heard that Naboth was dead, he arose to go down to the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite to take possession of it. And so obviously this is a story, and so let's think about some of the same sorts of things we looked at this morning. And let's start by thinking about the setting or the context. What is the setting in a story? What's the setting in a story? You can talk, it's all right.
Sure. Where is it happening? What's, what are some of the things going on around that? Good. Um, there's a couple of different ways that we can think about the context or the setting of various passages in the Bible. We could think about what comes right before it, what comes right after it. We could think about the historical situation. We could think about what parts, what other parts of the Bible does this section have reference to. Probably for this, the historical context is most important. And because this is kind of an extended story that starts in 1 Kings 16, I think that we will uh, do well to look for that in the chapter right before. But start out by looking in chapter 21, verse 1, and look at the first word there. How do we know that this is where the story starts? Who and the kids can answer this. How do we know that this is where this part of the story begins? Give you a hint. It's the first word in the sentence. Now, so that marks off the beginning of the story, right? And we'll come to the end of it. And we know that the chapter break is the end of the story because look at the beginning of chapter 22. Chapter 22 says three years pass. And so we've got the beginning and the end of this section. Now it says, now it came about after these things. So if you see after these things, where should you look? Where do you think you should look? Anybody can continue reading, or Braden? Okay, good. Now, after these things could be like everything we've learned about Ahab up to this point. I think it's probably talking about what happens in chapter 20. In chapter 20, there are a few things that take place. If you look at chapter 20 and verse 1, it says, Ben-Hadad, king of Aram, gathered with all his army, and there were 32 kings with him, and horses and chariots, and he went up and besieged Samaria and fought against it. Just for sake of time, we're going to jump down to the next key thing in this chapter, and that's in verse 13. Now behold, a prophet approached Ahab, king of Israel, and said, Thus says the Lord, Have you seen this great multitude? Behold, I will deliver them into your hand today, and you shall know that I am the Lord. And the next big thing in that chapter is verse 28. This is the second time that the Arameans come against him. And it says, Then a man of God came near and spoke to the king of Israel and said, Thus says the Lord, because the Arameans have said, The Lord is a God of the mountains, but not of the valleys. I will give all this great multitude into your hand, and you shall know that I am the Lord. And then in verse 34, it says, Ahab made a covenant with Ben-Hadad and let him go. All right, this is the guy he's just been fighting against. He makes peace with him and lets him go. And then we see God's response at the end of chapter 20, in verses 42 and 43. He said to him, Thus says the Lord, because you have let go out of your hand the man whom I had devoted to destruction, therefore your life shall go for his life and your people for his people. So the king of Israel went to his house sullen and vexed and came to Samaria. 
Why are those last two verses important for setting the context, uh, the setting of this story in chapter 21? What similar things do we see happening? Maybe about Ahab's attitude. What's similar between his attitude at the end of chapter 20 and as we get into chapter 21? Anybody's welcome to... He's pouting. He's sullen. He's vexed. There's a lot of different ways to say it. And the reason is that God has pronounced judgment on him. So then we come to chapter 21, and we see verse 1. Now this is the beginning of our story. After these things, it's the stuff I think that happens in chapter 20. So let's think about the main characters in chapter 21. From verse 1... We have two main characters. We have names of places, but there's two people that this story is about. Who are the two people? Ahab. Who's the other one? Naboth. All right, good. And then we come to the next part of a story. So if the setting is sort of the background, the next part of the story almost always is the conflict. So what's the conflict? Look at verse 2. One of the kids, describe for me the conflict. What's going on? Okay. All right, good. Ahab wants Naboth's vineyards, and Naboth said no. So here's a question for us to think about. Was Naboth right in telling the king no? Or should he have just said yes because Ahab was the king? What do you guys think? Naboth was right. Okay, how do we know? Okay. Good, good. Uh, Leviticus 25:23 is a cross-reference you might have in your Bible. It says, um, it says in 25:23, the land shall not be sold permanently, for the land is mine. For you, but aliens and sojourners with me, every piece of property you provide for the redemption of the land. And then also in Numbers 36, there's a similar idea. Essentially, this was supposed to be their inheritance for their family. And if the land had been transferred, then it reverted to the owners. It was supposed to go back to the family, go back to the tribe every year of Jubilee. So they would, they were, every so often, the land would be returned to the proper owners. And so... He's like, this is my inheritance. This is what God gave my family. I can't just give it to you. I can't sell it to you. So then, if we have the setting, and we have the point of conflict, maybe I should do it from your perspective, you have the setting, and then you have the point of conflict, then you have this increasing tension, this rising action of what's taking place. Ahab's response is, again, the same thing that he had at the end of chapter 20. And Ahab is, verse 4, how does it describe Ahab? He's sullen and vexed. He's pouting and he's angry. All right? And then, but, but the, the, the interesting thing about this is in both cases he was wrong. God had said, I'm going to give you victory over this king and Ahab let him go. And now... He's trying to take land away from somebody he had no business taking the land away from. And 
Uh, that person said no, and so he has the same response. He's sulking. And now we have a new character in verse 5. Who's our new character? Someone who hasn't answered yet. Jezebel, all right. Jezebel is, as we see here, Ahab's wife. And uh, she comes in, and uh, this interaction kind of reveals something interesting about their relationship. Why are you pouting? Don't worry, I'll fix it. Does it seem like something's a little backwards in their relationship? Who's supposed to be the king of Israel? Ahab is. And who seems to be taking charge in this situation? Ahab's wife. I don't know that there's a real strong parallel, but I think that probably reminds us of another story, at least a little bit. Anybody think what that story might be? Another, another story where the husband was supposed to be doing something and then the wife took the lead because he wasn't doing his job and then a whole lot of trouble resulted from it. Okay. Even earlier than that. Adam and Eve. Okay. So I think that there's a little bit of that sort of sense here too. So let's look at Jezebel's scheme starting in verse 8. So she wrote letters in Ahab's name and sent them to the elders and the nobles living with Naboth in the city. What's her scheme? If you had to summarize it real briefly, what's her scheme? What's her plan? How is she going to get Naboth the vineyard? Okay, which is? Okay, good. So she's not good what she's doing, but good, your answer. Uh, She's going to accuse him by means of these elders in his city. They're going to have a fast. So here's... Here's the thing. This is a fast. This is an opportunity for them to worship God. And in the middle of it, they're going to do something that is clearly not at all worshiping God. And in fact, about as far as you can get from worshiping God. And that is to falsely accuse him of cursing God and the king. And the response for blasphemy was at the end of verse 10. What were they going to do if he was found guilty of blasphemy? Stone him to death. All right. Now we see a few new characters, these nobles in Naboth's city. And uh, a question we should probably ask ourselves when we see new characters introduced is, are they the important characters or are they less important characters? You have major characters and minor characters. You think these guys are major characters or minor characters? Minor characters. Why do we think that they are minor characters? Maybe one of the kids can look at... Verse, maybe verse 11, and think about why might they be minor characters. It's not real obvious, but look at, look at how they're described. What's different between how they're described and how Ahab, Jezebel, and Naboth are described? Sam. Okay, they're described as worthless men. Good. What else? What are they called? In addition to describing their character, what are they called? Yeah, it's probably not as clear as I was thinking it would be. We don't know their names. Okay? So they're... We don't, they're less important characters because they're only in this middle part of the story. We don't know their names. 
and they're not mentioned later in the story. All right. Does Jezebel's plot work? Short answer is yes. I mean, uh, Ahab gets his vineyard. So now that Naboth's dead, Jezebel tells Ahab, and he goes to take possession of his vineyard, and he's probably all excited because he says, now I'm going to turn it into the vegetable garden that I wanted it to be in the first place. And at one level, we'd say, okay, the story's going to stop right here at verse 16 because Ahab's got what he's wanted. The conflict's been resolved. But in reality, I think the high point, the climax, the most important point of the story happens right after this. From Ahab's perspective, I've gotten what I wanted. But now we have really the most important character of the story introduced in verse 17. Obviously, we have two characters here, but one of them is more important than the other. Who's the most important character in this story? God. And then also, secondly, Elijah, the one who's going to speak for God. Uh, one of the big themes that if you read through the book of 1 Kings, you'll see over and over is this idea of the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord and how that is fulfilled, how what God says comes true. And uh, what message is it that God has for Ahab through Elijah? What's the message, especially in verse 19? There's at least two things that Ahab is supposed to hear that Elijah is supposed to tell him. Braden, what's one of them? Okay, that's the first one. What's the other one? Okay, go ahead and give us the other one, too. Then we come to verse 20, and we sort of feel like there's something missing from the story. Because you have God talking to Elijah, and then all of a sudden you have um, Elijah with Ahab. Because verse 20 says, Ahab said to Elijah, Have you found me, O my enemy? And so the narrator just jumps right to Ahab and Elijah talking. And Elijah's response is, I have found you because you have sold yourself to do evil in the sight of the Lord. And it seems that there is more specific detail that God gives in the, prof the prophecy that we don't see in verse 19, because when Elijah actually presents the message to Ahab, there are three things that he says are going to happen to uh, Ahab and Ahab's family. What's the first one in verse 21? Maybe someone who hasn't answered. All right, he's going to take away all of, his, all of his descendants, all of his sons, and what else? Bring evil. Bring evil, good. So what three people or groups of people is God going to judge? Ahab's children, who else? Ahab's wife, Sam, and Ahab himself. All right. We also have this narrator's comment that is here in verse 25. And the reason I call it a narrator's comment is because it's very similar to what you see when Ahab's first introduced in 1 Kings 16, verse 30. That says, Ahab the son of Omri did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. 
Verse 25, Surely there was no one like Ahab who sold himself to do evil in the sight of the Lord because Jezebel, his wife, incited him. He acted very abominably in following idols according to all that the Amorites had done, whom the Lord cast out before the sons of Israel. So now we've reached the climax. There's this confrontation between Ahab and Elijah. And now we have sort of the resolution, the, the falling action. The story doesn't stop with the narrator's comments, but instead... Ahab actually has a response to this judgment that God has announced through Elijah. What is, what is Ahab's response? It's one of the kids that hasn't answered. What's Ahab's response in verse 27? Okay, he tore his clothes. What does that mean? Why would he tear his clothes? Why would he put on sackcloth and fast and go around despondently? Good. Okay. So it seems like it had finally sunk in for Ahab. I've sinned against God. And at least outwardly, he's going through all the things of repentance. And based on God's response, it seems that it was a genuine repentance. What does God do in response to Ahab's repentance? Anybody, feel free to answer this. Verses 28 and 29. Okay. So we look at that and we say, God showed mercy to Ahab, even when Ahab clearly didn't deserve it. So this part of the story ends with verse 29, but in sort of the falling, uh, the, the working out of all the last details. Does God's word happen? Turn over to chapter 22 and look at verse uh, 34. 1 Kings 22 and verse 34. Ahab is in battle. It says, A certain man drew his bow at random and struck the king of Israel in a joint of the armor. So he said to the driver of his chariot, Turn around and take me out of this fight, for I am severely wounded. The battle raged that day, and the king was propped up in his chariot in front of the Arameans and died at evening. The blood from his wound ran into the bottom of the chariot. Verse 37. So the king died and was brought to Samaria, and they buried the king in Samaria. They washed the chariot by the pool of Samaria, and the dogs licked up his blood according to the word of the Lord which he spoke. Did God keep his word about Ahab? Yes. What about Jezebel? You have to read through a bunch more chapters to see whether God kept his word about Jezebel. But look at 2 Kings chapter 9. And toward the end of the chapter, verse 33, uh, Jehu has come to the city where Jezebel is hiding, and the people who are in this upper room toss her out of the window. Verse 33, they, he said, throw her down. So they threw her down, 
Some of her blood was sprinkled on the wall and on the horses, and he trampled her underfoot. When he came in, he ate and drank, and he said, See now to this cursed woman, and bury her, for she is a king's daughter. They went to bury her, but they found nothing more than the skull and the feet and the palms of her hands. Therefore they returned and told him, and he said, This is the word of the Lord, which he spoke by his servant Elijah the Tishbite, saying, In the property of Jezreel, the dog shall eat the flesh of Jezebel, and the corpse of Jezebel will be as dung on the face of the field in the property of Jezreel, so that they cannot even say, This is Jezebel. And then what about his sons? Look into the next chapter. Verse 1, Ahab had 70 sons in Samaria. And Jehu sends this message and says, If you're with me, get rid of them. Verse 7 of chapter 10, When the letter came to them, they took the king's sons and slaughtered them, 70 persons, put their heads in baskets, and sent them to him at Jezreel. When the messenger came and told him, saying, They have brought the heads of the king's sons, he said, Put them in two heaps at the entrance of the gate until morning. And you come down to verse 17, it says, When he, that's Jehu, came to Samaria, he killed all who remained to Ahab in Samaria until he had destroyed him according to the word of the Lord which he spoke to Elijah. And so, as we think about what lessons should we take away from this story, that's always a challenge. You read a story, what lessons are we supposed to learn from it? I think from the whole book of First and Second Kings, we take away the lesson about the word of the Lord. What's the lesson about the word of the Lord? Obey, because God is going to going to do what He said, right? All right, good. In terms of if we think about how a passage like this relates to the gospel, not is Jesus in this passage, but in terms of what do we learn about from this story that will later support our understanding of the gospel, I think we see God's mercy to Ahab even when he clearly didn't deserve it. We certainly see that same sort of kindness even today. And then in this specific story, think about what happened to Naboth and what happened to Ahab. Did God accomplish justice for Naboth? I think you can say that he did. And with this story as a backdrop to what we looked at this morning from Acts 6 and 7... The Jews who stoned Stephen were even more guilty because they knew how God had done what God had done to Ahab for treating Naboth this way in the Old Testament, and they still did the same thing to Stephen. So what applications then do you think we should take from this story? What does it have to do with us? What are and I'll just get your feedback on this. What are some things that looking at this story you think that you should think or do or feel or anything along those lines? Obey, the Lord. Obey God, okay? That's certainly one of them. What else? Trust God's word, okay? What about if we're tempted to get something in the wrong way? Don't do it. You know, a lot of times we think, well, I can get away with it. 
He's the king. Who can touch the king? Who can stop the king from getting whatever he wants? There's a greater king, and it's God. We see God's patience even with sinners in the fact that he delayed the judgment on Ahab's family until after Ahab had died. And when we, when we see all of the, um, just kind of the, the horror of the way that judgment fell on Ahab and his family... It's not in the Bible so that we just focus on like blood and gore and grisly details. It's in the Bible so that we take sin seriously. Like we, we sin and we think it's not a big deal. I, I made this person upset or I just need to pray a prayer to God. And while at some level that's true, that uh, certainly it's true that if we belong to God and we ask His forgiveness, He will forgive us. It's also important for us to think about the fact that sin is a big deal and that sin had significant consequences, especially in the life of Ahab. And so, while this story, I don't think, was entirely in Luke's mind from the perspective of that this somehow prophesied what was going to happen in Acts or anything like that, I do think that there's parallels that knowing this story... And then going back and reading what we read in Acts 6 and 7 this morning, I think really helps that story to become more real, more significant, and it's just an important thing for us to look at. And so, along those same lines, when we look at the Bible together, and I'll just, I'll just sort of direct this toward the kids so you can think about this. When you read the Bible on your own, can you do, you don't have to answer this out loud, but just think about it, can you do all the things that we just did looking at this passage tonight? You don't have to know everything about the Bible and be at the level of like a Sunday school teacher or a pastor or whatever else. If you look at the Bible and look for some of the clues that we look for in the passage to show where the story starts and ends and look for the different parts of the story and think about it, you can understand what the story is saying and you can think about what the story has to do with you. And then the thing about what the story has to do with you is not just something that we make up because it sounds good, or it's not the same thing every time. Obey God, which is an important part of this story, but it's easy for us to make our applications of the Bible really nonspecific, really, really vague. Like, the story is about God. What about God is the story saying? I think we can answer those questions if we look carefully at God and His Word. Let's close with a word of prayer. Lord, as we look at an Old Testament story like this, we just get a sense that it's a very, a very different time than that in which we live today. There's a lot of differences between their situation and ours. But even so, there's a lot of things that we can learn by looking at your word together. We pray that you would help us to do that well. We pray that uh, you would be honored by how we use your word, that we wouldn't use it to make it say whatever we want it to say, but that we would see where in the text you say different things, and that from what it specifically says, you direct the way that we ought to live. You help us to learn. It says in in uh, Corinthians, don't be like the Israelites in the ways that they've sinned. And I think this story certainly serves as an example of that. But it also gives us hope because 
despite the fact that the Israelites sinned over and over and had wicked kings like Ahab, you never changed. You're the same God who was patient with them, same God who is patient with us, who deals with sin and who offers hope in Jesus. We pray that we would just take all these truths and they would sink into our hearts and minds. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.